0: I implore, Euodia, and I implore, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that... uh, This word would be uh, clearly what you want the people here to hear and guide us, Lord. Uh, Guide me that I would speak uh, truth and that it would be what uh, we need to hear. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit, having inspired this word. We ask you to continue to bless it to our ears in Christ's name and by his power. Amen. Uh, Those of you who weren't here two weeks ago, Uh, don't know that I preached a sermon from the text that's right in the middle of what I just read. Uh, I preached a sermon from uh, verses 4 through 7. And yet, I did want this to be kind of a set, a uh, sequence, and I really did feel that 4 through 7 obviously stands alone. And yet, I wanted to couch it in the context and what Paul was getting at when he told us to rejoice and pray as he did when we talked about it last time. And so this time, in that we're expanding it a little bit, I wanted to give you a little bit of background because now we're scooting back in order to include the situation that Paul is addressing. So first I want to tell you about Philippi. This city that Paul had visited on his second missionary journey was the first city he had visited in what we now call Europe. When he was in Troas, which is across The the Strait of Bosporus there over in what is now Turkey, uh, he had a vision. And it was a man of Macedonia calling to him saying, come over here and teach us. So Paul went. He regarded this as a vision from the Lord. And so he went over there and he met with women who were meeting on the Sabbath by the riverside. And it said that women would meet there every Sabbath day to pray. It doesn't really indicate that it was a women's prayer meeting, so I don't know. Either the men didn't care, didn't come, or it was a women's prayer meeting. But it does seem odd. It strikes me as odd that that's uh, Paul's first contact. In much the same way as the church has been abandoned by men in our age, it would seem to me that the church was perhaps abandoned by men in his age, at least in this city of Philippi. But so this is a major city in the Roman province there. So uh, he, the first day, I believe, he converted Lydia. This seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, to, um, to uh, the faith, and Lydia was a very influential woman. She was from Thyatira, which is 200 miles away in what is now Turkey, and yet here she had a home in this city. So she was apparently wealthy, a trader. She would go all over the place, and now she's a convert. She's a Christian. So Paul then exercises a demon from a young woman who was following them around as they went to various prayer meetings. And Paul tolerated this for several days. And it is puzzling to me because this woman was speaking the truth. This demon that was in her was speaking the truth. But Paul knew something that we perhaps now don't clearly see. This demon was perhaps having her speak these words to get Paul into trouble, maybe prematurely get him killed or get him thrown out of the city. But whatever it is, Paul endured it for many days, but then finally he took pity on this young girl, and he turned around and he cast the demon out, and that got them into trouble. Because then this woman who was, it seems, a one-person corporation, because it said that she had multiple masters, and Phil had preached on this when he preached through Acts, Um, He said that this woman probably was bringing them in quite a lot of money because as a fortune teller, this demon was somehow able to give good advice, good direction to people. And this is the power of the devil. The devil, I guess, has some of these powers that his demons have so they could foretell the future to some extent. And these people believed her. They hired her. Now that's gone. It's funny how a lot of Paul's missionary journeys resulted in him undermining the local economy. Uh, When we attack abortion, I really wonder in what way it's also an attack on an economic staple of these people's lives that draw their income from it. And that's why they're so virulently against our opposing them. But uh, whatever that be, Uh, then Paul and Silas get dragged into the street by these men and the mob The magistrates beat them with rods, stripped their robes off, beat them with rods, cast them into the inner prison, which means they weren't taking any risks with these men. They were troublemakers. And yet here they are at midnight singing psalms. And the whole prison is listening to them. There's an earthquake. All the chains fall off, it says. All the doors open. So it isn't just Paul and Silas. The whole prison is wide open, and yet none of the prisoners escapes. It's just amazing to me that none of the prisoners that were in that prison left. Uh, and it's only Paul and Silas that are let go the next day. And yet that Philippian jailer that night is saved, he and his whole household. And then they are tried to, they're tried to remove, be removed the next day quietly. The magistrates say, "Oh yeah, those men in the prison, we rest a night. They get rid of them." You know, they just wanted to keep the peace the night before. Okay, bring them out here. They've, they're causing a riot, or at least they're the central, you know, cause for the riot. So they had them beaten, thrown in the prison. Uh, pragmatism. You know, many, many magistrates are all about pragmatism. And so that's what these guys were. But now the mob is over. It's it, We'll just get rid of them on the sly. But now they find out they're Roman citizens. And this is Philippi, a Roman city in the midst of a huge province filled with non-citizens. And this was huge for Paul and Silas to have been Roman citizens beaten publicly in this way. And Paul insists that they come down personally and ask them to leave. And then he leaves. And so it shows Paul's backbone. I mean, he'd just been beaten by them 12 hours earlier. And here he is demanding that they come down and personally request that he leave their prison. Uh, Paul is just a remarkable man. So that's where we are. That's kind of the background of Philippi. So now Paul is a few years later writing back to that young church that he had founded several years earlier. And as I'd mentioned, this church was founded apparently with women primarily because it was those women that were meeting at the riverside for prayer. And it's women here that he directly addresses. So in verse 2 we read this, that he implores you, odia. And he implores Syntyche. Now, very few words. There are only 16 words in that little sentence that has to do with what he's speaking about those women. And yet there, I think, are three very clear things that we infer from what he has said. First, the dispute between the women is very public. Else Paul would have never mentioned it in this letter. And so he knows it's public knowledge. He knows that the the whole church in Philippi is aware of the dispute between these two women. It may have begun in a small way, but it didn't remain small. It got bigger and bigger. And so by now everybody knows. And I also believe that it is personal because Paul never hesitates to weigh into a theological dispute. If it were over any point of doctrine, I believe he would have been well aware of it by this time and he would have instructed them in the doctrine that was correct he would have taken sides but he didn't he didn't take sides and so i believe that it's clear that this is some kind of a personal thing this is something that these women got into an argument about and now they're tending to divide the church or at least that's the risk number two again paul does not see a clear culprit and victim, because he implores each of these women independently. That's why he uses the phrase, I implore you, Odea, I implore Syntyche. I'm not sure how he chose which woman to address first. I would assume he flipped a coin, I don't know, took direction from the Holy Spirit. But I do believe he's trying to be as impartial as he can. And he's already, I believe, hinted at this in three different texts in the letter. And let me read them. Philippians 1, verse 27 Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. One spirit, one mind. He's admonishing them to stay united. 2.2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, Again, he's hinting at the fact that they are coming apart, and it's unacceptable to him. And then again in the previous chapter, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And so now he's questioning the maturity of the believers that he believes are dividing the church. Let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So we don't know what the division is being caused by, but we do know that Paul feels it should be settled. It's very clear from this. So that's two points. The dispute is public, and Paul sees no clear victim and culprit here. And number three, Paul believes the situation must be resolved. It cannot be ignored, else he would have just let it go. The first rule of dealing with sin is what? To ignore it. Now that's other people's sin. That's not your own. Your own you deal with. Your own you repent of. Your own you try to change. But when it comes to dealing with other people's sin you ignore it. We all owe that to one another because we're all sinners and we're all sinful. And so we should be cut some slack by our brethren. And yet there comes a time when all the slack is out. All that you had has been used. And then it's time to confront it. And Paul does not Uh, appear to be afraid of confronting things like this. So now let's get into a little bit more details. And so we'll go into the next verse. The next verse is verse 3. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Again, we have three things, I believe, three facts that are clearly stated that we can build this on. They were once of the same mind, these two women. They once agreed. The text doesn't say that they were best buddies or anything, but it does say that they were all united. They were all united in this work. But it does say they each labored with Paul in the gospel. They also once behaved better than they do now. It's obvious because there was unity before. Now there's disunity. So that means they have fallen from a higher position of Christian maturity to a lower position of Christian maturity. Now, we know that women didn't publicly preach or publicly evangelize, but in their spheres of influence, they had tremendous influence. These women were changing the church. I mean, women founded Christianity in many ways. Sure, you have the men that are the apostles and you have Jesus that is the head, but yet women are everywhere throughout the book of Acts. Christianity is really the first religion that really incorporates women so, so fundamentally into the foundation of the church. Judaism didn't, certainly. And nor do, does like Hinduism or, or Buddhism. Men, it's all about men. And yet here women are being firmly integrated into it. Yes, there are different roles between men and women. But both are integral to the church. They prayed, they taught, they trained people, they served, and they supported Paul's work with money. Real money. I mean, some of these women were wealthy. And so this is real money we're talking about that Lydia had. And yet Paul, of course, has to balance this. He can't be catering to people that give him money. And so who knows? Maybe both Euodia and Syntyche were wealthy. But yet he doesn't refrain from doing the right thing here. So it is sometimes hardest to help those who have been most instrumental in the church. These are the people that are proudest of their position in the church. These are the people that have the largest stake in some ways in the church. And yet they're the ones that are hardest to help because they're above that. They're the helpers. They don't need help. They don't want help. And sometimes they resent help. And so in this case, many people that could have perhaps helped these women didn't because they're above them. I'm not going to go mess with that. And so they didn't want to touch it. But yet we're going to get to this. Paul confronts it head-on, and he encourages the whole church to get involved. But yet here, despite their present dispute, Paul regards them each as true believers. He regards all of them as believers. There are five uh, people that are represented here, and we'll get to that in a minute, but he regards them all as having their names written in the book of life. He's not questioning their faith. He's not questioning their salvation. He's questioning their conduct in Christ. And he's condemning it as being unworthy of Christians. So now let me go back to the first part of verse 3. I urge you also, true companion, help these women. He is talking to some person there. We don't even know if it's a man or a woman, but we believe it's a man because the word is masculine. And yet he's telling that person specifically, help them, help them. Don't let this fester. Again, there were these five people that used to be there and that had founded this church. Paul, we had these two women, we had his true companion, we, ha- we have him reference Clement here, and we have him reference fellow workers. All of them, their names written in the book of life, all of them instrumental in this church. Now, Paul insists that they strive for unity. Why? Why? the question I have to ask you is, is it worth it? Is unity worth the possibility of splitting the church fundamentally and completely and comprehensively and forevermore? Is it worth it? Is it worth pursuing unity with that risk? And I would obviously say, yes, it always is. Paul tells us that it is. That's why he's confronting this head on. But why is it worth the risk? Well, First, it's what God would have us to do, obviously. And it is Satan that is really combining with our flesh to try and not confront unity or disunity. Satan wants you to just ignore these things. And your flesh wants to ignore these things. You don't want to have to fight people. You don't want to have to get involved in this. What does Proverbs say? like jumping into a quarrel is like grabbing a dog by the ears. I mean, you don't want to do that. You're going to get bitten. And we know, we know that we'll get bitten, and we probably have been bitten. And that's what makes us shy the next time. But yet we're still supposed to do it. It's the right thing to do. And you know the thing that is really most condemning and convicting about this is that if we don't get involved, we are behaving no better than an unbeliever. It's unbelievers that flee from things like this. And are you an unbeliever? No. If you're a believer, you should want to get involved. You should want to be a peacemaker. That's just part and parcel of being a Christian is being a peacemaker. It's what exactly Pastor Kaiser has been preaching through on the Beatitudes. So, if you do not obey him in this, then will he bless you? That's the question I have for all of us. If you persist in any sin, I believe you are forsaking. You are walking away from God's blessing. To the degree that you elevate a cherished sin above God, you are declaring yourself to be out of God's grace. And God will do one of two things. He will either withhold blessing from you or he will bring judgment into your life. And thankfully, he will bring judgment into your life. He might do both. But God often ignores the unbelievers who are caught up in sin. They're not hoisted on their own petard, as they say. But boy, isn't it nice that sometimes as soon as you even think an evil thought, boom, God slams you. That's God's love. And that's a wonderful thing. If you don't feel God's rebuke in that way, then you have to worry. And so you want God's rebuke to come down on you as quickly as possible when you're beginning to fall in love with some sin that you will not sacrifice, that you will not cast aside before you come to this table. That's what this table is all about, and that's why we love to do it weekly. This is about casting aside sin, ferreting it out of your heart and your mind, identifying it as sin, and wanting to get rid of it, wanting it dead. Now, it might spring up two days later like a weed, I mean, we weeded extensively when we had uh, folks at our house a couple weeks ago, and Tabitha just filled three trash barrels. That's sin. That's how quickly sin takes root in your property, in your heart, in your mind. So we need to deal with it. So now we come to a review of last time, two weeks ago, because we're coming to verse 4 through 7. The title then was called Worry Warriors. And uh, today's message is wrapped around that. And so I wanted to give you a review of that just in case you weren't here or just in case you've slept since then, like me. Uh, And I did ask you to memorize it. And I did memorize it. And I was telling the kids on the way in, I said, you know, this, as a text to memorize, this one is actually pretty straightforward. And then I thought, "Uh uh-oh, now I'm going to get up here and I'm not going to remember it just because I'm saying it's so easy to memorize. But anyway, we'll get to that at the end. But first, verse 4, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul and the Philippians were enduring persecution, severe persecution at this moment when he's writing this letter. So the church had been founded there for a few years, and yet it has been undergoing persecution. And as a matter of fact, when he writes about fellow workers whose names are recorded in the book of life, some say it would appear to point to the fact that some were already dead, most likely martyred. And yet Paul urged them to rejoice. Paul himself, in chains at the time he's writing the letter, urges them to rejoice. And so, obviously, how much more so should you rejoice? You should rejoice. Whatever your circumstances, they are better than Paul's. They are better than the Philippians. We know that. You should rejoice in God's grace to you, God's love of you, God's patience with you. Paul pounded joy into them. I told you about how repetition is used in the Bible sometimes. And that's what Paul did. He he references joy 15 times in these four chapters. Verse 5 spoke about conducting yourself as a Christian. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. That's about being gentle, about allowing yourself to be wronged rather than risking wronging others. And that doesn't come naturally to us. We want to defend ourselves. We want to be right. We want to be protected. And yet I believe that's what that latter phrase means. The Lord is at hand. That means that he is there to protect you. Rely upon him. Trust him. Don't think that you always have to protect yourself. That's why God commands us to trust in him. He is there to protect us. So this verse also means to not be quarrelsome with people, to be gentle with people. And we all need to learn this. We all need to master this. This doesn't mean that you will never get upset. It doesn't mean that you will never be righteously indignant and have to confront people. But it means, though, that you must always love them. You must confront them in love. The next verse says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. And we harped on that word, nothing. We're to be anxious for what? Nothing. Think of worry as this. I told you that worry is like any sin. Think of worry as a snake bite. You're out camping in western Nebraska and you go into their horrible pit toilet late at night and you hear, shh, 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 yeah, zap. What are you going to do? If you have an antidote in your tent, what are you going to do? You're probably going to do like anybody. Aah! I've been bit by a snake, yeah. Run around in circles, you know. What are you supposed to do when you catch on fire? Drop and roll. Yeah, right. I think everybody runs until someone <laughs> tackles them and rolls them around. But uh, we just don't have the presence of mind sometimes to do the right thing but that's what worry is worry is a snake bite with deadly venom that the more you run around and not partake of the antidote the worse it's going to get so the antidote is prayer the antidote is to just take it right to god say god here it is again here's worry the snake bit me again i'm sorry i'll try to stay out of that pit toilet late at night or at least i'll take a flashlight and bang some pots But uh, that's what it's like, and so we take worry to God, and God washes it away. God promises to wash it away. You take it to him, he washes it away. And then the supernatural peace of God fills us. It takes the place of the worry. The supernatural peace of God fills you, and you don't have the worry anymore. You don't know where it went. You don't care, frankly. You're just glad it's gone. That's the promise of God, and it is supernatural. And it is thankful prayer. It's mentioned with thanks, so it's thankful prayer. Now, let's recite these verses. Now, who even attempted to memorize verses 4 through 7 of Philippians 4? Who even attempted? Okay. Oh, my, this is sad, sad. Who attempted? I'm not asking you to come up here. Come on now. I charged you to memorize these four verses. And I know some of you were here. We don't have a whole new changeover of the church in two weeks. Oh, this is sad. This is sad. Okay. It's detention for everybody. Right after the service, we're going over there and memorizing verses 4 to 7. Okay. I guess I'm going to have to do this myself then. Okay. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Oh, you're just not wanting to be braggarts, I think. (laughs) Very good, very good. But you were afraid I was going to have you come up here to do it. You did very good. Thank you. Thank you for memorizing that. Why do we memorize? I spoke about it last time. We memorize so we can meditate. And we meditate so we can understand. And with that understanding comes just a natural integration of the truths that we've memorized into our conduct, into our thinking. That's why you must memorize this text. Because, especially if you're a worrier. If you're not a worrier, then, you know, so basically, all the women need to memorize this text. (laughs) Just kidding. No, we men are worriers too. We just worry about different things. Okay. In verse 8, we'll go on now to the next section. In verse 8, he begins, finally, brethren. Finally, brethren. This is, this is how sometimes when Phil has been 30 minutes into a sermon and he says, and now to, to, that was our introductory point, right? And you're thinking, oh, no, how long is this going to be? But so uh, he says, finally, brethren. But see, he'd already said this once. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. So see, he began to close this letter once already, and yet he got a second wind. Or, as we know from Scripture, he was filled with wind, right? Because the Bible is God-breathed. The Bible is God's breath. And so Paul was filled with God's breath. So he got that second breath from God, obviously, because he went on to write a lot more than what he was going to do when he was attempting to close, apparently, at one. But so now we say, finally, brethren, So what is he going to do to wrap up the letter? What's so important that he's going to focus on? We've already got through this wonderful rejoice part. He's addressed this critical issue that is disrupting the unity of the church, and yet now he's going to wrap up the letter. And so what are we going to talk about? Well, let's read verses 8 and 9. Finally, my brethren, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. This is why that meditation part is very important because he's now pulling it out. He's applied it to you. He said, this is why meditation is important. Meditate on these things, and now this is what you're to meditate on. These things. He lists six things, and then he gives two more just to boot that are in addition to those six things, and he wants us meditating on them. But I have a question for you. And maybe you're like me, because a long time ago, when I would read this verse, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, I meditate on these things, doesn't it strike you as being somewhat, you know, optimistic? Is he telling us to just kind of forget about all the bad stuff of life and focus on the good stuff and essentially ignore the bad stuff? It seems like that, with a casual reading of this, that can be what you're left with. And this is, uh, there's a term for this in our society. It's called a Pollyanna view, a Pollyanna view of life. And there's a flip side to the Pollyanna view. Anybody know what the flip side is? It's another woman's name, Cassandra. There's Pollyanna and Cassandra. And let's talk about those views because I want to clarify that Paul is not. Uh, admonishing you to have a Pollyanna view of life. So Pollyanna, where's the term come from? Pollyanna was the heroine in a 1913 novel by the same name, Pollyanna. And she was an irrepressible optimist. It was a very popular novel. Has anybody read this book? Ah, yeah, we got some that have read it. So Pollyanna was an irrepressible optimist. And so it is, I think... Uh, this phrase, looking at the world through rose-colored glasses, it's like someone who just basically sees the best in everything, sees definitely the glass as half full, not half empty. Now, Cassandra, this other, this other person that typifies the negative. Cassandra was a prophetess of Greek mythology, and it was Cassandra who gave her Trojan War projections, predictions that proved out true, but she was never listened to. She was never heeded. Even though she was speaking the brutally honest truth, she was kind of speaking like Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah, what God had had him speak? You would think of Jeremiah as kind of being coupled with this Cassandra view of life. You're just a negative person. I don't want to listen to that. But so Pollyanna is this incredibly hopeful, optimistic person, an incurable optimist, and Cassandra is a brutally honest person who some others would describe as a doom and gloomer. But she would just describe herself as a realist. I'm, I'm just being a realist. I'm not a pessimist. I know the world's going to end tomorrow. You know, I'm just a realist. So one website described the two views like this, and I think it, they're very funny. They use alliteration. Uh, Cassandras are disparaged as nattering nababs of negativism. Nattering nababs of negativism. This is actually a quote from Spiro Agnew who was vice president under uh, Richard Nixon. And it was written by William Sapphire, who was a writer for Agnew. And so Spiro Spiro Agnew was known for this type of alliteration, these little catchy phrases that he would uh, throw out there for the news organizations. Pollyannas are dismissed as pandering puppies of positivism. (laughs) Pandering puppies of positivism. And I found this on a a, uh, website that was in Spanish from the Philippines. But... uh, I should have asked my daughter here to translate for me, but fortunately most of it was in English, and I can understand it. And besides, you only have to add like a few letters on the end of anything Spanish, and you get English. (laughs) Just just kidding. (laughs) So now my question is back to my question. Is Paul being Pollyanna here? He's telling us whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are just, anything of good report, meditate on these things. So is this a Pollyanna view of life that he's telling us to partake in? And I would say no. And the reason I say no, and the way I understood the text, I believe it was also no then. I did not understand the text properly. He is not commanding us to ignore sin in our world. He wants us to deal with that. He wants us to be aware of that. He wants us to confront that, if at all possible, and when it is appropriate. But he is commanding us. To not let sin rule in your minds and hearts. You are to protect yourself from that. You are to guard yourself from that. And you must take it to God then. That's why he talked earlier about this worry. How it can really penetrate our defenses. And can steal away our peace and joy. And we let that happen. Because we're not doing what God told us to do. So now, what God told us to do earlier was pray with thanksgiving to him. And that the peace of God would protect us. And now he's giving us more. In other words, the earlier text was about how to solve the problem once you've had it come in. It's like dealing with it in a fashion where you've already been bitten by the rattlesnake. But these are how to keep the rattlesnake away. These are how to stay focused. And so you're protecting your mind. Now, the reason is that it's a thin line between Sin and not sin. Uh, policemen have to deal with this. You know, they're dealing so much with negative stuff that they have to have it not affect them, not, not lead to them treating other people badly because that would be sin. And so we, as Christians, must not be overwhelmed by sin. We must conquer it. And yet we do that by filling our minds, dwelling on good things, thinking better of people perhaps than we ought or that, we, that, that, that is in reality. And yet God commands us to do this. God wants us to think better of other people than we think of ourselves. So we know this is a command of God. This is what he wants us to do. Whatsoever things are true. And so here we're obviously talking about facts. God wants you to deal in facts. There's a proverb about, you know, the first one that comes to you and tells you the story seems to be easily believed. But then you hear the other side from the other person. And now you've got to sort things out. I was up late last night talking with Zaya about being at work. And at work, his manager has to sometimes deal with conflicting stories. Something's gone awry, and there are two or more people that are telling stories about what exactly happened to cause this to come about. And people are perhaps shading the truth to lay some blame off them. So we have to be wise at this. And so we have to go with the facts. We can't go with our conjecture. We can't be uh, persuaded. We have to hear the whole story. And so that's what he's telling us. In your mind, you have to think like this. You have to train yourself to think like this. Focus on the facts. Focus on the truth. Not conjecture, not lies. Whatsoever things are noble. This, I believe, is probably the one that is most lost in our present society. Uh, Nobility was something that meant that you were dignified that you were above that. And in many ways, we don't admire that trait in people anymore. We think of it as being haughty. Uh, if you've ever read Democracy in America by de Tocqueville, you'll see this. This is America. In America, we're egalitarian. Everybody's equal. I don't owe you any allegiance. You're just like me. You breathe the same air. You walk the same earth. Whereas when you it had that in europe in europe you had the noble class and you had kind of this pecking order and of course in india you have the whole caste system but see we've gone from one extreme to the other where we kind of dumb it all down and we really don't want anybody putting on airs. we don't want anybody having any of these practices that seem to conflict with our ability to treat them just like we treat ourselves or just like we treat anybody and yet even we know that there are occasions for that. There are occasions where we know we must behave in a more dignified way. And we try to train our children to recognize those subtle distinctions. And we don't always succeed. Sometimes children embarrass us uh, because they're behaving like they're at home, but yet they're out in public. And they do something that's not publicly decent and uh, we think, oh, I'll need to take the opportunity to train about that next time we're at home. But here's not the perfect place. Just you know, just them, get them out of the situation. But so that's nobility. That's being dignified. That's being above reproach. And we should aspire to that. We should behave well. It keeps us out of trouble, honestly. And I, and I myself can often get into trouble like this. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to joke with people at work that don't share my cultural background. And they've fallen flat and sometimes been very offensive to them. Whatsoever things are just. This is all about fairness. This is all about not bringing biases into situations. And we are all biased. We know this. And so you must be fair. And when we identify with a group for instance and especially in politics it's so easy and even within the christian realm it's so easy for us to be judging people uh when when my you know again to use an illustration my son has used he said you know he sees people come into work and they're his customers and so he you know treats them well but they're all christianed out they've got the garb and everything and they don't treat him well but yet he has these construction workers come in that are real tough looking and, and big you know uh, smell of smoke and have big tattoos and they treat him like he's, like he's a king. And so we Christians just really don't always come off as being very nice. And we sometimes come off as being better than other people. Whether we believe we're doing it or not, it's how we're perceived. And uh, this is the perception is the reality, as they say in marketing. And so we must work on that perception. If that's the way you are coming across, then it's wrong. You must work at that. So being just is being fair, just not playing favorites at all. And that's so hard to do. It's so hard to be fair. Whatsoever things are pure. And here we talk about what is wholesome, what is unpolluted. And it's a beautiful thing. We should elevate that type of thinking, that type. And, and uh, I was reminded the uh, Tyler's aren't here, so I'll mention this. But uh, I had recommended that movie. Uh, I was asked by, in an email by... Uh, uh Tracy I think I forget if it was Trevor or Tracy but I was asked whether there was anything offensive in in uh taking chance and I was like oh, no I don't remember I don't think so no and then they had a bad word and and uh Trevor talked to me he says you know the whole church was over and we were watching that movie and then this guy said this and and I said oh I'm sorry Trevor I I totally forgot I didn't realize that but but yet that is purity that is, we we And yet I told Trevor, I said, you know, I'm much more concerned about what's coming out of my kids than what's going into them, you know, kind of how Jesus warned the Pharisees. But yet, especially when you're in a setting like that, we get back to that whole dignity one, and uh, I had erred. I should have been more cautious. I should have said, well, I don't know. You better watch it first. <laughs> so if, if I ever give another movie illustration, I'll try to say that. Whatsoever things are lovely. Uh, it's said beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? And yet so many of us share the same perspectives on beauty. We have obviously been given this by God. Uh, I've used this illustration many years ago, but there is this, uh, this view of things that is common, like in artistry, and, uh, and uh, there's this certain perspective, and I forget they call it the golden ratio. And in this golden ratio, if something is outside of that ratio, we don't regard it as normal. It's, it's not normative, and it's somewhat less pretty. And yet, if it fits within that golden ratio, we like it. Our eyes are drawn to it. And that's obviously an aspect of us being human that God gave us because it, it just pervades all cultures. It's not just us in America. It's everybody worldwide. So God has given us an eye for beauty. And so whatsoever is beautiful, we're to dwell on. And yet, I am frustrated often by the looky-loos out there when we drive past accidents and some cars upside down. You know, I'm just like, I I look ahead, I watch that I don't hit the person, but I'm just waiting for that slot to get around them. Because those people are over there, there's an ambulance there, they're doing their job, they're taking care of it. I just want to get around it. I just don't want to uh, be another casualty in the road as the gawkers are watching. And yet, that is human nature. That's our nature. Oh, I remember once driving through Chicago and seeing a motorcyclist spread over the interstate. I mean, it was a horrible scene. And yet, it took me hours to get past that because everybody that came along was like me, like, oh, aghast at what they were seeing. There was just bloodstains all over the road. And you could see that the motorcycle was all crumpled up and sitting along the guardrail. Um, and so that draws our attention, of course. And it's this spectacle that just, just fills our minds. And I think it's exactly that that Paul is saying, as long as you fill your minds with that, horror movies, ugly, gruesome stuff like that, then that's going to lead down the path to sin. It's just that simple because that is a path of ugliness. That is not a path of beauty. And, if, and, you, and God wants you to think of beautiful things. You want to guard your mind against such evil atrocities. Whatsoever things are of good report. And here we see that it's successes. We're to seek out the good of good report. Anything good, anything that is successful, Where to do this. And we're always reminded of those positive things. I am a winner. I am a winner. You know, someone in a movie plugs in a tape and they're listening to this mantra, trying to build them up. It's silly. And yet, to some little degree, I believe that's what Paul is saying here. Whatsoever things are of good report. Dwell on the successes. Focus on those. It makes you more positive. It makes you want to achieve good things. But yet, if you're always dwelling on the negative, that will never work. We've done that before. That's what they're always trying through training classes at our work to to have us set aside. Don't think like that. That's that's defeatist thinking. You need to think it's possible. You need to think you can achieve it. And what is it? Like, you know, no invention was ever invented by someone who was a defeatist. They always had to have, oh, next one. The next one's going to be the big one. I'm going to win then. And then the next two are this. Those were the six. And then in verse 8, the second part, it says, if there is any virtue, anything, Praiseworthy. So, I want to focus on these two a little bit because I believe they're kind of fundamentally different. They seem similar. But if there's anything virtue or anything praiseworthy, virtue, I believe, is focusing on anything that is inward virtue. It's virtue, it's something in that's coming out. Praiseworthy is something that's outward and visibly obvious to people. And so, virtue might be harder to spot. You're looking for that, and it's very, very subtle cues. and yet with the praiseworthy it's it's obvious you know this is what's worthy of praise so it's just fundamentally different it's kind of an inward and an outward view so if you have insight into people and you see virtue in them praise that virtue that's a good thing you want to encourage that especially in our children we just forget to do this as parents and so we want to affirm our children when they're doing the right things we just take it for granted and we don't think to tell them you know thank you for being such a good kid you're a good kid You know, and I appreciate that. It's very helpful to me as a parent to have good kids. Because if you were a bad kid, my life would be miserable. I'd I'd run away from home, I guess. But they're good kids, and so I appreciate it. So now, what are we to do with this list? Meditate on these things, Paul tells us. And so we went through all this big list of stuff. And you fill your mind with it. You think about this. This is what you fill your mind with instead of the horrible thoughts, the horrible doubts. I remember listening to a Christian a woman speaking once on a tape, and she was talking about how she was in her kitchen one day, and her husband was like five minutes late. And suddenly her mind is careening off. Oh, he's been killed. He's, in, he's in, been in a bad accident. Oh, what, what are we going to do? I'm going to have to remarry. Who would I remarry? And then, and then she's, she's running through the men that she knows, and now she's getting herself. And then it's like suddenly, ah, what am I doing? You know, that my husband isn't dead. At least I don't think so. But so that's how our minds work. Our, our minds do crazy things, and we have to control them. They lead us into trouble very quickly, and we've got to nip that in the bud. The main thing is recognizing it. We enjoy it sometimes. Our minds are like little, little playgrounds, little amusement parks that just cause us to think all these crazy thoughts, and sometimes they're fun, but they can get us into trouble. It's like an amusement park that has no rules, that has no, no height requirements. I could just go in there and do anything I want. But God doesn't want you behaving like that. You are to control your mind. That's why the title of this message is Mind Control. Of course, mind control makes it think like I'm trying to control you guys. But that's not what I meant. And I meant it as a, as a twist on that. We can't even control our own minds. What business do we have trying to control other people's minds? So that's what I really meant. Our job is to try to control our minds, to control what goes in, to control what's coming out, to behave ourselves like Christians. Allow these things to fill your mind and nothing else. It is said that idle hands are the devil's workshop. And we've heard this phrase for a long time. And actually it's common. It's been around for hundreds of years. And yet there is another phrase that's been around for a couple hundred years. Idle brains are the devil's workshop. So see, both our hands and our brains can be used by Satan. We don't know how our mind works, but we know that God can put good thoughts in our brains. I know that personally. I mean, I've had it happen to me. And so if if you don't believe me, I guess that's why I don't know. I can't point out a verse, but we know that you have visions and we know that men have visions and, and they experience these things. And somehow that's goodness, getting into these people. Even the vision I mentioned about Paul having the vision while he was in Troas of the Macedonian man, that's at night. He's just dreaming and God fills his mind with something that he wants him to do. So we must fill our minds with good stuff. When David stayed behind, remember, that's when he got into trouble. All the kings went off to war. David stayed behind. Idle hands, idle brain, idle eyes. Before we know it, he's committing uh, adultery and murder. So see, that's what we get when we get lazy. And we must not be lazy. We are to fill our minds with the good. We are to think God's thoughts after him. And we do this by filling our minds with productive, constructive, God-honoring thoughts. Productive, constructive, God honoring activities. Your mind and your hands. Verse 9, Paul claims this the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. It is said that mimicry is the highest form of flattery, and Paul repeatedly tells people to do as I do. Paul was not afraid to tell people, I am the example that you should follow. It's amazing that a man, a mere human, can make that claim, and yet that's the claim that we all must make as parents, because our children will not obey us if we tell them, do as I do, and we are doing things that are evil, or if we tell them, don't do as I do, do as I say, well, then you're just being a hypocrite. I had a teacher in school. He was so funny. He was a great teacher, and he would always be writing on the board and talking real fast. And sometimes what he wrote would be the exact opposite of what he said. And if the board was right, he would say, watch what I write, don't listen to what I say. But then it was just as often the reverse was true. He would have said the right thing and he would say, listen to what I say, don't watch what I write. And of course it was all in fun because we have no idea which one to believe. But he would just poke fun at it and then he would correct the one that he was correcting. But uh, sometimes we're like that. We do this. Our conduct and our statements don't match. And we should at least admit this to our children, uh, acknowledge that we're sinful, acknowledge that we're weak, and tell them which is right. Let's not confuse them anymore. Let's at least end the confusion. They can continue to regard us as something less than a perfect Christian, but they can at least be told right from wrong, and they can see right from wrong. And that way, we're not telling them uh, we condone it. I don't condone it in myself, nor will I condone it in you. But we must try to model it as best we can. And that's what Paul said. Paul said, do as I do. Do," And he, and he even uses all these words. The thing which you learned, received, heard, saw, all those things. He says, copy me, mirror me, mimic me. Let us uh, tie all this together. We, we, we went all the way from verse 2 to verse 9. We began with this dispute between these two women that was running the risk of tearing the church apart in Philippi. And Paul confronted it. And then he went into this rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And this prayer, how it guards your hearts and minds, how it makes you a reliable soldier of Christ. And then he comes to this conduct where the things which you, you know, dwell on the just, the noble, the good report, all these things, that's what you're to fill your mind with. So now he instructs his, his true companion to help them settle the dispute. He expects results from that. That's very practical. So he begins with practical, practically addressing a very critical issue of concern in the church. And then he goes on to these other things that are more fuzzy, that are more something that a person has to integrate into themselves before it can really come out in their conduct. That'll take time. That'll take years. Takes us all of our lives. And so he went from something that he wants to see changed in their social culture, in their church, to things that he wants to see changed in themselves immediately that are in part based on actions. And then to this, this is how you prevent it. This is how you guard your mind. I believe it's all one thing. He's saying, you're here at these disputes because you didn't do these things. You didn't fill your mind with these good things in order to keep the bad things out. You didn't dwell on what was just. You didn't focus on what was positive. You women believed what was bad about one another, and you couldn't care less about what was good about one another. And so that's where we fail. We know the truth, and yet we fail to apply the truth in some difficult situation that we're in the midst of. And all of us do it. And we will all rationalize it. We will all say that, well, there's an exception here. I'm the exception. Aren't we all? We're all the exceptions. And the fact is, we're just sinners trying to rationalize our sin, not wanting to do the difficult things that we know God wants us to do. And what I would say is, then don't expect God's blessings. Just don't expect them. Unless you're willing to cast every sin upon Christ and come up here and partake of this table every week and deal with the sins that have occurred, then I don't believe God is going to bless you. I really don't. That's not how He works. He wants surrender. You must surrender. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin. You will continue to sin. But when you sin, you repent of it, you admit it, you be a Christian. That's Christian conduct. That's Christianity 101. It says in verse 7, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. The peace of God. And so I spoke about that two weeks ago as being an attribute of God. It is that peace of God that really we can partake of, we can have come out of us as well. And it totally washes away that worry. And here in verse 9 it says, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. Paul turned it around. So see, it was the peace of God earlier. It was this aspect of God, this attribute of God that you are blessed with, you are filled with. And yet now it is the God of peace will be with you. So you get not only the gift, you get the giver of the gift and which is obviously the greater. We know it is better to have the god of peace with us than to just have the peace of god in us so he's showing you how that happens i believe this is very practical in instruction it's showing you how to do it but just will you will you obey will you do the right thing let's pray father we thank you for your word Uh, your word is truth And your word prevails over all other words on this earth as being true, always being true. And we thank you for them. We thank you that we can rely upon them. Lord, they are hard at times. Sometimes we want to hear the truth. We want to admire the truth, but more like a beautiful piece of art that has absolutely no practical value in the way that we live our lives each day. Yet, Lord, that is not your word. Your word is like a powerful tool that we must depend on every day to live our lives. Will we use that tool or will we just admire it? Father, we thank you for the fact that your word can do remarkable things in us and to us, can restructure our thinking, can calm all of our many worries, And so we pray, Lord, that your word would come and fill our minds, drive sin out of us. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would apply it to us, convict us of sin, cause us to hate it like you hate it. We thank you now, Father, for this day, and we ask you to bless us as we go about our lives in the week ahead. We pray, Lord, bring this into our minds. Have us to dwell upon it as we serve you.